everyone, and welcome to another installment of Innovation Crush. Uh, I'm your host, Chris Denson, and in case you're just tuning in for the first time, I, I hope not. I mean, by this time, we've, we've done a lot of shows, right, Maria? It's, it's like, yeah, all like this This is really close to 100 shows. I, I would assume you guys have, have heard us by now. Um, but if not, there uh, we cover all things marketing, innovation, ideas, um, anything that's sort of a creative influence in business and life. So, uh, and today we don't stop that trend. Uh, today we're here with Ben Parr. Say hello, Ben. Hey, hello. Hey, I didn't see uh, that was good. You see, you already innovated. You didn't even say, just say hello, which is what most people do. You said hey, hello, um, which I love. So, uh, I guess for starters, just give us a little bit of a one hundred and one on who Ben Parr is, and um, and then I'll, I'll ask you some very nosy questions. So Ben Parr likes scuba diving, long walks on the beach, uh, candlelit dinners. Uh, watching Star Wars trailers. But if you mean my professional stuff, then I was the editor of Mashable, and I'm now, um, that was years ago, now I'm the founder of Dominate Fund, an early stage fund, but uh, I am also the author of Captivology, the science of capturing people's attention, which is on the science and psychology of attention, why we pay attention to certain people and products, and how to utilize that science to capture the attention of others. I'm sorry, what did you say? <laughs> no, um, that's great. It's captivology. I love when, when you know my Twitter handle is Densonology. Just so you know, you got another follower today. Um, so I love ology and the idea of science and just understanding things. Um, kind of, the, I guess, give us a little bit of uh, you know what captivology is. Right, your definition. Of the, yeah, I did write down the science of psychology and uh, attention. Um, but what, is this is this book like a process you know driven thing, or is it more like an expose on what makes it all work? Or is it a combination therein? Yeah. I mean, the book is more is there's two parts of it. There's I go through the actual science of attention and the stages of it and how it works and helping people understand the links between attention and memory and the scientific research behind it. But most of it is actually focused around these seven uh, central what I call captivation triggers. And they're each a different chapter that talk about a different psychological trigger that captures attention the science behind why it does, and then how you can utilize that in daily life and how you can uh, harness that for whatever you're doing, whether you're trying to get the attention of donors for your charity or you're a teacher trying to get the attention of students or you're an entrepreneur trying to get the attention of customers and users. Now, I'm, I'm curious as to why you wrote this book, right? Like, I mean, if you talk about your, you know, your, you have a, you're a multi-hyphenate. You have um, an investment fund. You work for Mashable. You're a pundit on, I think, CNET, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and just, you know, a lot of different multi-hyphenated experiences. Why pick this as the topic? You go like, oh, this is what people need to hear from Ben Parr about. Well, it was because after I left Mashable, uh, a lot of the um, inbound I got when I was from startups needing help on press, marketing, customer and user acquisition, virality, all these areas which you know are attention. And the more that I really looked into it, the more I became fascinated. I've had lots of book offers over the years, but it was the first time when a subject came up, I just became fascinated. And to me, what attention really is, is the fundamental currency of the modern economy. You can't do anything anymore without the attention of somebody or something. But we don't have a – the public doesn't have a great understanding of attention and how it works. And so I see what I've been doing like as, as very important for the next 
10, 20, 30 years. This research is fascinating and is very, very useful and powerful. And, you know, I want to help a lot of people rise above the noise. So, you know, without reading the book on air and giving it all away, what uh, what are some of the, you know, some of the things, principles contained within your sort of seven uh, chapters, if you will? I mean, that, that, that one could take like a long time, but I'll just run by the seven very, very quickly. Sure. Um, just so people understand, and I'll talk just about a few in more detail than others, but there's automaticity, which is our automatic reaction to certain colors, sights, and sounds. There's framing, which is how we view – is how our frame of reference changes the way in which we pay attention. There's disruption, which is we pay attention to the things that violate our expectations. There's reward, which is uh, the intrinsic and entr- extrinsic motivations that capture our attention. There's reputation and the power of experts and authority figures in our lives. There's mystery and the power of mysteries and suspense on our attention. And finally, acknowledgement and uh, why we pay attention to the people and things that pay attention to us and provide us with validation. So, so format-wise, right? You, you know, I, I think you talk to a lot of celebrities. You talk to a lot of, I will call them business celebrities. Um, you know, what? Which isn't to me when you hear this type of conversation, you don't necessarily relate. Like, oh, it's you know, it's based on a series of interviews, or at least it includes interviews. Um, you would think it's just more of a sort of a play-by-play on the the principles that you just mentioned. Um, what was the value? And, and going and kind of seeking counsel, if you will, or seeking insight as you were, were, were building this? I mean, it's such, such a large and uh, all-encompassing subject. And I didn't want it to come from just me. And obviously, I've had a lot of experience in the area. But I had the opportunity to you know bring the best in the world into this. And I was very lucky to be able to get to interview some amazing people like Sheryl Sandberg from Facebook, Steven Soderbergh. The director, Shigeru uh, Miyamoto, the creator of Super Mario, David Copperfield, the magician. Because I wanted a view of attention, not just from my experience with just tech and media, but from across all these different industries. I interviewed everyone from PhDs to street violinists. You, you, you left me out. I wish I wish you could have you could have asked me something about. Well, now that I know. <laughs> um, no, that that's, I mean it's it's great. So I mean, one thing I was curious about, right? You know, when you when you think about the idea of attention, we've had other authors on, and we've you know talked about um, this, you know, these different principles. I'm always curious, uh, especially when I read your Wikipedia page. I see that you're a dual citizen. I don't know if everything on the internet is is true, but um, but the idea of attention in other cultures, right? When you leave America, you know, what, what kind of stays true and what changes? So I thought a lot about that when I was doing this book. And the first thing is I talk about this subject a couple times in an example for automaticity and how, you know, um, green is terrible packaging color in China, for example, because it's uh, associated with uh, death and funerals. And in fact, there was a Revlon a few years ago they had a perfume that w- performed really well in the U.S. and they brought it to South America, but that completely fell flat because the perfume was using the smell of a flower that's common in funerals in South America, the camellia flower, I believe, and it just completely died. But the book itself and the triggers, I chose them because they're fundamental across human nature. It doesn't matter which culture you come from. Uh, something that violates our expectations is going to capture our attention and encode to memory. It's just how we're biologically wired. And so while 
the implementations of each is different, the fundamentals of the triggers are the same across cultures. That's great. Yeah. It, you know, it's always one of those things where you go like it, it's I mean, it is paying almost, you know, literally paying attention to where you are and what those customs and are. Um, is there anything you offer in terms of like bridging the gap? Right. Where I may take that idea, like do, if I'm going to launch my perfume in which I do have a perfume coming, it's called Innovation Scent. Um, no. It, Wait, really? No. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you want, if you want, so. if you want to invest in it, sure. It, I'll, I'll send you a business plan. <laughs> Give me a couple. Of weeks. I don't want to. I don't want to invest in it, <laughs> but it's still hilarious. <laughs> I, would, I wonder what the smell of innovation is. That would actually be a good, uh, like you know, a, a good experiment. Um, but in terms of bridging that gap, like where do you go to learn that? Right? Because I, I think most times we find those things out by accident. Right. It's like, oh, you know, you don't sign in red ink in certain Asian cultures. Right. You don't sign your name in red. Um, but I, I didn't learn that until I signed my name in red. So, you know, is there something is there a diligence process that needs to go if you're you know, if you're especially because you deal so, so much with startups and kind of like your the roots of this whole project was around startup culture and, you know, this idea of attention. Um, but as companies begin to glow, grow go- globally, Wow, it's grow globally is a hard thing. Grow glow glow. Um, grow globally, you know, what where, where are the mechanisms up front that you need to sort of keep in mind as you're as you're uh, taking on that growth strategy? So the research really does matter. It's it's it, you have to put in the time or you gotta have someone directly from that culture. Like, um there is no the thing I really realize about that is there is no shortcut to uh, understanding the cultural differences between each country. It is actually, and I had this conversation years ago. It reminds me, I had this conversation once with um, Niklas Zenstrom. He's the founder of Skype, and the him and I had this discussion in Ireland years ago about why there's so many unicorn, like five, ten billion dollar businesses in the U.S. that come out and not the same in Europe. And one of the reasons we agreed upon was that uh, you that you that in Europe, if you launch a product, you got to adjust for twenty different cultures and twenty different languages. And the U.S. one culture, one language, and you have a startup that's already got to three hundred million people. China comes with an even larger advantage: one language, one billion people. So. The big thing is like there is a point where you do have to just do that research to figure out when you're going into new markets. But go and dominate your market first and then pick the larger markets where there's more, more space to do. You know, um, For better or for worse, there are certain advantages to certain markets if you're doing a startup. Nice. Uh, no, that, that makes that makes total sense. So, um, as far as you know, applying or drinking your own Kool Aid, uh, I did read that you were sending the book to space. Or and um, I'm wondering what what walk us through that, and then maybe some other like means by which you've you've applied the science in your own practice. Don't you mean fly up to that? <laughs> yes, fly up to that little birdie, fly. Yeah, <laughs> yes, fly to it. So, with I, I, like with my book, like you know, the, it's really the first and most important thing is always the content. If you don't have a great product, then no one's going to care. I, I worked hardest on making sure it was a great product, and ever since then, it's just a matter of getting out there. That have, like the space thing is one example of me utilizing some of my research, but it's also for a good cause because um, the book's going to go into space and then it's going to parachute down. We're going to do it next weekend since um, this weekend the weather is bad in Atlanta. It'll come back down next weekend. We're going to auction. We're going to raffle that off along with a chance to meet Buzz 
Aldrin, the astronaut, for charity, and it's going to be a fantastic time. And I have a few other plans in the works for captivating people with uh, the book, but I'm relying in the end on word of mouth and people really being helped by the book and by its lessons. Uh, yeah, no, that's. I mean, it's it's great. And I'm, here's what I here's what I also wonder, right? Like once you and this is a lot what happens with marketers um, or businesses, right? You, you know, or you hit that 300 million mark that you that you mentioned. Um, what ha- what do you do once you have their attention? <laughs> right? How do you keep it? Because I, I think getting the attention sometimes. I mean, you look at any social media feed on any given day. There's a dozen things, and you know that I may actually pay attention to. And there may be a new site that I go to, but I never end up going back. Or I go down the rabbit hole on on YouTube, and then I've never I've never watched that video or that channel again. So how do you keep the attention once you've gotten it? So I talk about that as well, and how um, there are three stages of attention, and the most important stage, the stage that no one really talks enough about, is long attention and long term interest. And what you've got to do as a, a person or thing trying to capture attention is walk your audience through those three stages. And you need to figure and you need to use certain triggers. Like in the book, some of the triggers the triggers are kind of chronological in the sense that some are early, um, are immediate attention, some are short attention, and then some are long attention. And you gotta utilize uh, triggers that focus on long attention, like acknowledgement and mystery, to really captivate your audience. But the big thing is the transition. You've got to think about how you transition your audience from once you get their initial attention. Um, which triggers do you use to keep their attention? And I talk a lot about about that. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's you know, and I, and I would imagine it varies depending on your audience. And I think. You know, there's this idea, especially as time gets shorter and shorter, like, you know, six second videos down to, you know, one second video Um, and these micro moments. We're creating all these sort of micro moments, right, where you don't need to take in everything. There's there's more surface, less depth. So we have a broad swath of knowledge, but not like a deep knowledge on one particular thing. Um, So, you know, I'm, I'm curious as to like how. I don't know. I, like the, I'll use the the term millennial, but I think this is an every person thing. Like I, you know, I was trying to read an article today, and it was it, I was struggling because I'm like, oh, I think I got it. Um, you know, is there is there a cure for these these micro moments and, and allowing people to to actually go deep in an area? So. The first thing I want to say is that uh, my opinion is that uh, attention, the fundamentals of how it works, hasn't really changed because it's the same instincts as before. It's just we've adapted to a world with so much more information. Now, um, there are still places in content that are long form that are still very popular when you look at some of the long form pieces. And there's YouTube channels that do very well with 20, 30 minutes and who losing that but i do know what you mean and where we're scanning more and we're not going deeper in a specific subject and it really just kind of comes down to understanding how your own attention works and removing especially the distractions now um, our attention is designed for novelty which is why uh, in the past when there was a rustle in the bushes we turned our heads because it could be a saber-toothed tiger to eat us or potential food source not there's, we still have those same instincts, but we don't have saber-toothed tigers roaming the halls, thank God. But we still have those instincts, and as a result, they, we have to fill it in with something else. It's become smartphone notifications, emails, texts, that sort of thing. If you want to really concentrate, you've got to shut that all down. You've got to turn off those notifications. You've got to 
really put those things away and then start really focusing. But there's no simple answer. I think it's a thing where over time, over the next decades, uh, our species, the human race, will better adapt towards this new information-rich economy. Yeah, well, usually that uh, rustling in the bushes is just me peeing. So, um, so next time, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Um, so when, uh, when you think about, I'm looking back in your past, right? And I read Wikipedia and it says, uh, I'm just going to quote a little bit here. Uh, the group he created students against Facebook newsfeed peaked at over 730,000 members before Facebook acquiesced to the protest and added more privacy controls. Um, cause I, I think you have this history of sort of disrupting the way people view certain things or kind of exposing. I, I feel like that's kind of like the journalistic approach to your you know your career thus far um but kind of at, at least give us some background on what exactly that particular project was at that particular particular moment um while you were at, i believe at columbia um but uh, I'm, I'm just curious as to like how that came to be and, and what it was all about i mean i that, i wouldn't call that a project as much as just a random happening <laughs> right. but it, i mean i was at northwestern actually and this was 2006 and I woke up one morning and newsfeed appeared and existed. And you got to remember back then there was only walls and profiles. And then they added this newsfeed feature and it was really disconcerting for a lot of people, myself included, because you know, you would see things like, "Oh, this person broke up with this person." And there was no privacy controls to stop that. And I didn't like that. You'll notice nowadays, you don't like if someone breaks up, you don't see that actually typically um broadcast on Facebook anymore. And there's a reason for that. Anyway, I saw that. So I created a, stu- a Facebook group called Students Against Facebook Newsfeed. Uh, I handed it off to a couple friends on the internet and I said, I'm going to go and uh, I got to train as an RA because it was around that time I was training as a resident assistant. I left. And then a few hours later, I started, I got a phone call and a friend is like, dude, did you see your Facebook group? It has 10,000 members now. And this was around noon. And it was starting to spread wildly because of the newsfeed, funny enough. By the end of the first night, it had 100,000 members. And I remember sitting uh, in front of the computer with people around me watching this happen. And basically, the next four or five days, it was my 15 minutes of fame where all these all these phone calls, you know, interviewed by Time and all these other publications were going, uh, were talking to me, that sort of thing. And as a result, you know, like it was just, it was my first foray, I guess, into attention and my first foray into social media long before Mashable. Uh, Facebook and Zuckerberg eventually fixed the f- problem and what they made some privacy features, which is what I wanted, and the story died. But, you know, I've, I've kept in touch with Zuck ever since. Zuck reached out to me right after. Uh, kindly asking me about what things to could he could do to improve Facebook, which I thought was a real strong thing. No, that, I think, think he had a little laugh when he learned I joined Mashable. So <laughs> he was like, "Oh, I see what you did there." <laughs> um, no, it, 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 you're right. I mean, it is sort of an early foray, and and how you know when you again, I think it's also when you think about attention, like and and turning that attention into action. Um, it, uh, being that moment is a sort of a pleasant surprise, I would imagine. There's also like an oh shit moment. Now, now you really now you really have to activate, right? It's one thing to just kind of put it out there, and like suddenly you have all this feedback and all this. Um, you've got a, a bunch of troops rallying behind you, but you know what was what was going through your mind at that point in time when you're like, oh, this is actually working, and now I need to figure out my next steps with. Uh- 
Wait, that it was working? Yeah, like <laughs> exactly when you go like when you go from the ten thousand to you know seven hundred. I mean, I mean that one like it, this is not like my plan with Mashable or anything. It was just kind of like, oh shit, that happened. Right. You know, like it it just kind of happened. Uh, and I was a kid. I was a junior in college. I didn't know what the <laughs> heck I was doing. So people were telling me like university. Uh, like the university press department was telling me like here's things we'll help you set up with and all this sort of thing it was crazy but uh i like it's it just happened honestly by accident there's no plan to the whole thing at all i just like would wake up every day and there'd be a bunch of messages in my phone and you know i had everything like i had a couple thousand people message me by the end i had like two people i had one person propose to me and two people uh, we'll just leave it at my inbox had very interesting things <laughs> i'd love to see those screenshots one day <laughs> um so you i mean you uh, i don't know i wonder if they still exist i yeah, I'm, I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg went through your inbox you know. and was like, "Let me, let me get rid of, me get rid of some of this evidence really quick." Um, no, I think about the, you know when I look at some of your accomplishments, right? And you know that what you know you look at something like that. Like again, we don't have to call it a project, but just like that moment um, over a very what felt like a narrow uh, span of time. Um, you look at your career at Mashable and your journey and trajectory there was relatively quick. You were one of Forbes 30 under 30 um you you know you've kind of had this I'm going to call it like fast tracking or you know in the startup world rapid prototyping of your career right you you move really fast and even talking to you like you you don't seem like you don't you seem antithetical to the types of success you've seen uh person so I'm just curious is like um what's your process behind being able to produce so quickly and and on multiple fronts simultaneously you just have to go and do like for me it's it's been a double edged sword in the sense that i always just if there's something i'm like i'm just going to go and try this or do this and the upside is that things get launched and some things really work and the downside is sometimes it doesn't work and it bites you in the butt but i've never been afraid to just put stuff out there and work as hard as i can on things you know mashable was you know the volume and getting into the valley and just talking to as many people as i could and building that network and building that relationship and that worked, and it's been fantastic for me over the years. Uh, I think as I've gotten a little bit older, I've kind of honed in a little bit on which things are really matter, which things don't. It was more spray and pray in the beginning. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to say like how the early stages, Mike, like how that all happened. I also, I mean, I also got very lucky in addition to working hard. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you know, it's what uh, th- those those two things go hand in hand, right? Uh, luck is when preparation meets opportunity, um, and so you know, you you spent a lot of time just doing the work, right? You put in the ten thousand hours, and then you know, like you said, the networking and those kinds of things begin to pay off. Um, what's been par like in downtime? Because uh, because you do have a lot of things going on. So like, what's down? I've heard of downtime. What is downtime? <laughs> yeah, like everybody it needs it, right? Like you know, I manage a, a pretty busy team, and I'm like, hey guys, like find two hours at least every two weeks, like two consecutive hours to do nothing, right? I think it, it's a, it's important to refresh. Um, but I feel like you, you like you, I, and I don't know. Uh, but is there is there a bin par downtime? Like do you, you hit up? Um, uh, Burke Williams or or anything like that to to sort of release for a second and and get get your mind cleared so you can approach the next thing uh, a little bit more aggressively or clearly. 
It just depends. I'm uh, trying a little bit more to uh, focus on on workouts and walks to just clear my mind. But uh, Ben in his downtime, I'm just trying to do new things or just try to do fun things like scuba diving is a hobby of mine that I do if I have the chance or um, just travel and catch up with friends, uh, camping. It just kind of depends. I feel like this year with um, all the book stuff, I've been able to go and meet lots of amazing people, but it's also meant not a ton of downtime. That's too bad. You gotta you gotta get some more in there. I want to like the scuba diving sounds great. Well, we've got to get you some some relaxation <laughs> uh, to stop you from being so successful. So um, with you, you also um, on the investment side, right? Um, which is another interesting thing, right? Taking I love how you've taken sort of all your knowledge and experience and kind of. Uh, been able to tell one succinct story, right? I think that's what happens with a lot of multi-hyphenates. It's like, oh, well, I thought you were the the investment guy, or I thought you were the you know the journalist. Uh, but you know, where does um, uh, w- when you look at the investment world, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was around this idea of like the old school napkin deal, right? Especially for the early stage startups that you deal with. Um, does does that ha- like how prepared? should somebody be when they come to you? Like, do you ever hear an idea just in conversation or you something gets made up on the fly and you're like, oh, yeah, let's do that? Or is it more like, you know, how buttoned up do you need to be at that, you know, when they come to see Ben Park? Buttoned up, no. Prepared, yes. Now, your exception is if you're like a multi-time entrepreneur that I personally know and you're like, here's what I'm going to go do, I'm going to get excited because the number one uh, signal for success is you know, a successful previous founder, honestly. But beyond that, you better have your numbers and you better be ready for a grilling because every single time I go hard to find the holes in your business. And more than one or a hundred or a thousand entrepreneurs haven't been prepared for that because they haven't thought through the thought process or they haven't thought through the one sentence pitch or the market or another different aspect. I'm also trying to see how, how people perform under pressure because I want to and know is this person going to be uh, the founder CEO ten years from now? Because we don't invest if we don't project somebody as being that person five, ten years down the road. No, that's great. It's uh, you know I've I've heard a lot where it's a lot of the it's more about the individual almost than it is about the business because you can massage the business plan and make it certain you can pivot and you can do all the the things you need to do to create success but you need the individual that's willing to you know that's able to withstand the you know the the hurdles that you're going to uh, incur oh yeah no absolutely <laughs> so um i'm when we talked to chameleonaire a while back um, we we read we talked a little bit about this idea of a solopreneur, right? Um, you know the person who almost manages everything. Um, you know, the, do those individuals cross your paths? And like, what sorts of and, and is that scalable, right? The you know someone who's seen a lot of success, kind of on their own, um, and and really kind of you know, just really rocked it and uh, it has a good track record, but you, but not necessarily a team in place, you know, or, or is that somebody say, hey, you, let's go back to the drawing board on this one and, and get you a team in place? Uh, I mean, you're your best. I mean, it's, it's interesting because there's your best like founding teams, like your best companies always do have a team. There's usually one person who is kind of that face, but they're always that kind of group and team. And, you know, the best the best founders are team players, you know. And I've met a lot of people who have been 
who are extremely successful on their own and really pushing you know themselves but it's a whole different skill set when you have to lead not maybe one or two but 50 100 500 5000 50000 people you know and it's kind of like it's part of the reason where we're looking for these founders at scale we're looking for you know early on a founder's job for example is to build great products and really get in the nitty gritty of it but honestly i founder's role, especially a CEO's role in later stages, is recruiting top engineers and top uh, hires and is being an evangelist for the company and representing the company at major events and uh, building the top-level relationships and top-level sales. It's a different skill set, and if someone's not ready to you know, take up or learn or have that skill set innately, then they're going to fail. What's been the hardest lesson you've had to learn along the way? controlling my ego <laughs> and it's still a lesson I continually learn uh, I mean I was at age 24 I was given the powers co-editor of Mashable and everyone wanted to talk to me I wasn't ready for that and it got and it got to me sometimes but being able to understand you know there's lots of luck involved and there's lots of amazing people involved and it's never just about you no matter what it is is an important lesson to learn. And I'm lucky I learned it early, but I'm still not, you know, I'm always constantly trying to be more vigilant about that sort of thing. It's it's a hard lesson to learn for a lot of people, especially if you receive and feel success early. Yeah, and I mean, even as a leader, right? Like, And then, you know, you have this idea of trickle-down behavior, right? And, and so if you're leading an organization and your style is going to be reflected in some of the output, you know, what, what sort of philosophies have you adapted over the years or adopted over the years, um, you know, since that, <laughs> since ego stepped in or like just moved, moved over to the side a little bit, you know, what are some of those things that you go, that are your go-to for just being a, a good leader and a good example for these successes? So I remember actually I did an interview with CNN and I think about – and I told them what my grandfather told me, which was his like four pieces of life advice. And to me, it's it, – I, 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 I always take action to like improve myself and I have a – well, for example, I have a list of uh, usually my flaws that I put up so that I can remind myself what they are and how I can improve upon them and my goals and what I want to do. But, you know, my grandfather's uh, advice, and there's five actually, it was do what you say, finish what you start, be on time, say please and thank you, and opportunities can seldom be hoarded. And I believe if I can just do that, then I'll be in all right shape, and most people will be in good shape. You just got to deliver on your promises and know that great opportunities are not just about you. Yeah, uh, that that the kudos to your grandfather. I mean that that it's I love how previous generations have are like are so simple, right? And and those are the things that we forget. It, it's kind of like, like I have two kids, and uh, one quote I keep in mind all the time is like sometimes we try so hard to give our kids what we didn't have that we forget to give them what we did. And it's you know there's these like very simple. You know, those those are those are the rules you learn, you know, at the age of five. Right. And in, in books and in school and, and they apply to the daily grind of business and entrepreneurship and innovation and technology. So um, that that's awesome that you're, you're able to, to harness that and, and use it. Um, what motivates you 
You know, I, again, when I when I look at people who are su- successful multi hyphenates, um, there is there's always you know an internal drive to succeed and complete and do all just even do all the things that your grandfather mentioned. Um, so what is where's that internal motivation? What what is the kind of like the key driver for you? Well, so there could be a couple different answers, but uh, when I was a in college, I kind of couldn't, I kind of decided, and I don't know always how it came to this, but I decided I had one purpose in life, and it was, and it's very corny, that I had the ability and thus the responsibility to change the world for the better. And what it really means is that my life is about the more I do, the more, uh, the better I can potentially make the world. And I'm motivated by making sure that I can like I can I'm doing what I'm meant to do it which sounds odd but more like I I'm if I'm not living to the fullest of my potential and doing as much as I can then I'm leaving change off the table I'm leaving opportunities off the table and it's that fear of that that maybe drives me in some way it's a hard one I sometimes I sometimes don't think about it enough yeah no it it, it is you know I think Passion is one thing, right? It's the, but then when you add um, a layer of purpose to it, you know, it's like uh, when we talk to Adam Garone, who's the CEO of, uh, of Movember. You know, he said he got to a point in life where he wanted to move from success to significance, and I think once you hit that pivot, you know, it, like the world really opens up. Right. Whereas it's not about achieving. It's about doing something that makes a difference. And there, there's a difference there as well. Absolutely. Um, so one, one piece of advice when I, I watched one of your uh, news clips and uh, we talked you, you talked about leading with credentials. Right. As far as as far as going back to the, you know, the idea of captivology um, and what is what is some of the science right uh, around that? You know, as a, as an interviewer, a lot of times, you know, I've, I've done talks about like evolution through conversation. Right. And I'm like Kanye yourself. Right. But there's a difference between Kanye yourself <laughs> and really celebrating your abilities and your capabilities versus, you know, as you kind of put it, was kind of subtly and matter of factly leading with your um, your successes. It's the matter of factly part. It's 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 not being afraid to state the fact maybe you are an expert in the area, but explain why. You know, I studied, you know, 18 different, you know, at 18 different universities or I have a PhD in this subject and not being afraid to assert that, but at the same time, not um, letting it become name dropping and not letting it become, uh, you know, I'm the best. It's not about that. It's about establishing in a room. You're an expert because we pay attention to experts um, almost over almost anything else. It really, really matters whether or not you establish uh, yourself as an expert in that expertise. No, it's, uh, I mean, it's great. It's, it's so funny how, how – and well, what I was going to ask is how do, you, how do you know the difference, right? Some people feel like they're – like, you know, there's certain people where they talk and they come off as, you know, a little bit more on the ego braggadocious side versus being matter of fact. So what, are there any sort of indicators or is it just being a good listener and like watching people's reactions and, and seeing how they respond to your, you know, your – brain dump of, of uh, accomplishments well it's not about the brain dump it's just about you know 
it, you don't even sometimes have to say it. Sometimes it's just in the bios or people already know it. If people already know it, then you don't have to say it. Uh, and then a lot of times it's really just you know, showing that you care is more listening than talking, is more uh, is more providing a sounding board than trying to list the things and the people you've met in the list of accomplish, accomplishments you've had. Right. Makes total sense. So with, uh, the show – it's called Innovation Crush. Uh, I'm curious when you think about, you know, all the things that you get to see on a day-to-day basis and all the people you get to touch, um, what are you crushing on out there? What's your innovation crush currently? Is there something you see out in the world you're like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. I wish I had been a part of that or I love what they did there. I think about that all the time. Now, I mean, what, for example, Dominate Fund, we really like to invest in what we call the next generation of platforms. And so there's there's a couple of different ones that we've invested in that we um, I just find fascinating, like wireless electricity. We invest in a company called UBeam, which is creating what is going to be Wi-Fi for power uh, and, or uh, the power of like augmented reality and virtual reality or um, some of the new biotech stuff that's happening. I was at a, a bio accelerator yesterday and I got to see some really cutting edge uh, biological technology. For me, there's a, just a whole bunch of different areas. It's just who's building the great platforms in each of these areas. There's just more and more to be excited about right now. Yeah, it's it's, it's so true. I mean, you go to CES or South by Southwest, and the, like the combination of those two, it's like I have no idea like where which one is sort of the breakout thing. I'm excited about it all, and I'm lucky lucky enough that I'm in a position where I get to you know try to leverage a lot of the the cool things I see out there. Um, last but not least, before we before we wrap up, um, complete this phrase for me. Innovation to me is. Ooh, that's a good one. Thank you. That's not my answer. (laughs) Uh, Innovation to me is positive change, is positive hope, is changing something that exists fundamentally for the better and the betterment of the humanity and our planet and our world. That's where that's what real innovation is, and it's not just technology, but it's social order, it's socioeconomic, it's political, it's biological, it's social, it's all these areas. But yeah. it's about that positive change and fundamental positive change. But that, that's uh, I think you totally hit the nail on the head. You know, it's 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 one of those things that that gets you know gets my goose um, is you know this idea of like innovation being sort of an, an agnostic experience, right? It's not tied to one specific. Like a lot of times we associate it to technology and robots. Like that's kind of where I think the you know the the average citizen kind of goes when they think about the the word. But um, but I think you, like everyone wants to innovate, no matter if you're like a, a family man and you're at home with in trying to figure out like uh, how we're going to reroute our kids activities or um or you know like you mentioned like world changing i have to i have to disagree with you a little bit Uh-oh. on this one All right. <laughs> i don't think i don't think i don't think most people want to innovate i think it takes a a motivated set to actually want to and be active in, in, in innovating i come from small town illinois and i know lots of people who are very happy happy and there's nothing wrong with it very happy though with routine and being able to wake up in the morning and go to work and come to work get back from work by 5 five thirty, 
and be with their families and repeat process. And they're not thinking about how do I improve the world or how do I innovate in this or that area. They don't. That's not a thing I think a lot of people actually want. I think it's a subset of, of really dedicated, motivated people. And the difference is that you and I are surrounded by these people all the time. But when you go outside of that bubble, um, innovation is not a thing that a lot of, that some people actually are, are looking for, aspiring for. It's why when you see changes on Facebook and others, people uh, backlash because a lot of people do not like change. That's true. And well, there's a, I mean, there's a theory also like, you know, it's not that people don't like change. They don't like transition. Right. And, I, and, and when I when I think about the number of I'll call them non-innovation professionals, if you will, um, you know, that will come to me for advice in a, on a life moment or, you know, uh, so even that guy who has the routine on a day to day basis is still like, ah, there's this, you know, there's this one thing I'm trying to figure out. Right. And it could be very surface, like, you know, mounting a TV on the wall and which TV should they get or, you know, or something a little bit more deep, like, you know, my, my wife's sick and I need to figure out X, Y and Z. I think I look at it in terms of creative problem solving. Right. And, and I think we all encounter different problems on a day to day basis and those need you know, new solutions, right? If, you know, you do the same thing, you get the same results and literally, or if you're facing a new problem, you know, then how do you use it as an opportunity to, to grow and, and do something new and different? Um, but that was just my take on it. But I, I 100%, like, I, I, I know that they're, like, I, I, I too come from Detroit and the Midwest and it's like, you know, you go home and you visit people and you're like, oh, Okay, cool. Like you, like it's slow and steady. It's good, um, and and I, I feel like a lot of times is uh, kind of going back to what you're, you know, what we were talking about before. It's like this idea of simplicity and and, and figuring out how to how to maintain, you know, this um, a, a a place in life that you've achieved. Um, so where uh, where can people find you? I know you have close to sixty five thousand Twitter followers, so a lot, at least that many people <laughs> found you. So, uh, but as as far as like where can people reach Ben Parr and find out more about you? Where do they go? Well, you should find a rocket and you take it up to about one hundred and fifty kilometers up in space, and then you'll find me on. Well, maybe this is fifty years from now. Uh, do you want to actually? If you want to find me and you want to see my work and you want to talk to me about my book or anything, I'm at Ben Parr on every social network: Facebook.com/slash/BenParr, at Ben Parr on Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Shots, uh, Quora, you name it. It's at Ben Parr. Um, and if you're interested in Captivology, Captivology.com. It's on Amazon. It's on in Barnes and Noble. It's everywhere. You can also follow it at Captivology on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and I am not hard to find. Awesome. Uh, and what's your home address? <laughs> it's space. I already gave it to you. It's yeah, fifty my, miles my home up. Address is space. Is there area code or yeah, and zip code in space? Um, so everybody, this has been another installment of Innovation Crush. Thank you, Ben Parr, for joining us, man. This is awesome. Thank you for having me. And uh, we will uh, talk to you guys next time. Thank you. If you like listening to comedy, try watching it on the internet. The folks behind the Sideshow Network have launched a new YouTube channel called Wait For It. It's got interviews with comedians like Reggie Watts, Todd Glass, Liza Schleichinger, Slicing, I've been friends with her for 10 years. 
one of the funniest people out there, and I still have a hard time with the last name, Liza. Our very own Owen Benjamin, that's me, takes you on a musical journey down internet rabbit holes and much more. You don't have to wait any longer. Just go to youtube.com slash waitforitcomedy. There's no need to wait for it anymore because it's here and it's funny and I love you. A few days ago, Brooke Tudine posted an inspirational quote on her wall that got 17 likes and three comments. Thumbs up, Brooke. Geico also wants to make a comment. In just 15 minutes, you could save hundreds of dollars on your car insurance by switching to Geico. And nothing says inspiration better than saving money. Well, except for those posters that say things like teamwork, excellence, and make it happen. Hashtag keep climbing. Hashtag savings. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.